Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Holistic Finance. My name is Ryan Burklow. And on today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Brooke AZ Rents. She is the owner of Alpine Integrated Medicine. She's also on the board of the Washington Association of Naturopathic Physicians. Uh, her story as to how she got into naturopathic medicine and how she built her practice is an important and amazing one. Uh, in today's episode, we talked about that transition from graduating and getting started and what she learned, as well as we spoke into 1099 versus W-2 employees. And then lastly, we, start, we spoke about what she's learned and what she wished she would have done better early in her career. So without further ado, allow me to introduce my interview with Dr. Brooke A.Z. Rents. Dr. Brooke, I appreciate you joining the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I met you through the Washington Association of Naturopathic Association. And uh, I heard glowing reviews of, of you and, and and your practice and and what you've built. And I thought, you know, you would be an awesome, awesome person to have on the show just to talk about your, you know, how you started your business and what you've gone through because let's just face it, as I'm speaking with NDs and as NDs are trying to build their own business, there's a lot of struggles and there's not a lot of education around starting a business. Right, so right. Um, I'm hoping that that will be a huge, huge value add for our listeners today. So thank you again for joining. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Honored for it. So love to get your story, right? Like just off the bat here, why did you become a naturopathic doctor? Yeah, well, I'm from the East Coast originally, um, and I actually have a disabled brother. And so I was always involved in healthcare with him. And so I always thought I was going to go down the path of some form of healthcare. Um, but I was a big athlete when I was a kid. And I actually got injured at a soccer camp and thought, okay, great, I'm going to go into physical therapy. And I actually went to four years of physical therapy undergraduate school. And then, um, kind of stumbled across the Bastier website and realized that it was everything I believed about medicine. And I was in school in Maine at the time and being from New England, there was, this was in 2001 and 2000 and um, no one knew what naturopathic medicine was. Um, my family thought I was gonna go into witchcraft and um, I read about it, I applied, I got in and it was everything that I wanted to do with medicine. Um, just from the natural side, from being able to have access to prescribing medicine, even though that didn't come for a couple of years later, um, being able to do uh, manipulations. And it was just something that really incorporated all of medicine for me and where I wanted to be in the medical field. Yeah. I, it, it's funny, you you threw out the word witchcraft and it, you know, the, for those of you who don't know my story, I actually utilized that word too. When I when I didn't know anything about naturopathic doctors, I used the word witchcraft. It must be an East Coast term, <laughs> right? Because I, I, I grew up a lot in Maryland, right? Oh, so it go. must be an East Coast term because I was, talking be. to, I was talking to another naturopathic doctor and she even said like, the only people that use that term are people from the East Coast. Are you from the East Coast? And like, oh, I guess so. <laughs> so funny, funny. <laughs> um, but to your point, it's, you know, naturopathic doctors, it, to me, it just makes sense. It's natural. It's holistic. Like it's so, it's, it's so bad that naturopathic doctors have to overcome that hurdle with, Absolutely. with Americans. And, and it's unfortunate because every prescription in this world came from something natural. 
So, you know, really it's just going back to the roots, if you will, and understanding that sometimes things work better in the whole plant form or by looking at it holistically and instead of dividing people up into neurology and cardiology and, you know, physical therapy for their musculoskeletal woes, there's a possibility that it's all connected. And I think patients want to be seen as a whole person and not as just a sum of all their injuries. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you nailed it on the head. Like that was my experience with my son. My son had a stroke in utero and it was amazing the different doctors that they're trying to have us go see and they weren't trying to treat like my entire son. Like it was just weird how they were separating everything. So, um, yeah, so obviously not about the doctor who listens to this podcast. We don't need to keep, keep going down <laughs> that, this path. Uh, I just so appreciate it. Um, you know, I'd love to hear. So we, you graduate, right? You went to Bastyr. And then like, how did we get into owning your own business? Like what was the transition there? Yeah, so I graduated and actually like a lot of people that graduate, I set up a shingle in Seattle, um, private practice. I had a mentor who uh, was going through some health woes of her own and she needed some help. And so it was an opportunity for me. Um, and quickly from there, I found that it was hard in Washington to get your, your feet, get a footprint because there's so many of us and being a new doctor, there's so many great elders in the community. So it was really hard. And so then from there, I went and joined a practice so I could actually get a paycheck. Um, <laughs> and I did that for a couple of years and worked myself up and then uh, left that business and started a private practice again. Um, did that for two years and realized that it was really hard. It was, you couldn't do everything yourself. I rented a room. I was my receptionist. I was my biller. I was my orderer of supplies. I I did all my marketing, right? It was just, it was a lot. And I had recognized that I got to a point that working 80 hours a week to make the, you know, I think my bottom line at that point, my gross was like 180,000. And it was a lot of work to, to bring that in. And I was getting ready to start a family and we had to make decisions. And so we decided like, I need more help. And so that brought us to, do we open up a business or not? Um, and so we decided to do it. My husband and I, we talked about it. Um, I had a partner at the time that was an acupuncturist and we opened up the clinic and uh, long story short, I sold my car back to the bank for $8,000 and uh, used that as the down payment to open up our business for the first time. And it was really difficult to get loans from small business association, any bank. In fact, I didn't get anything. I had to sell my car back to get that money. And um, that's what allowed me to open up this clinic for the first time with the promises from banks that, oh, once you're established for two to three years, we'll give you a loan. That didn't happen. Um, you know, so that I'm sure we can get into that more here, but it was really difficult. And so, but in that first year of having a clinic with uh, a front desk staff that took the load off of me um, and hiring an outside biller, it allowed me to go from 180,000 to about 300,000 in a year because I brought my patients with me, but I was able to take on more by having that staff. So even though my bottom line, what I took home might've not changed, because I had to pay other people, my quality of life and the hours I worked went down quite significantly. And, you know, I'm gonna, the hiring of your first employee, right? Like really going there, that that's, that's a hard, at least it was for me when we hired our first employee. It's such a, a mind game because for me, it, it was crap, I'm responsible for someone else's paycheck. It's not just my 
it's not just me I'm worried about anymore, right? In my family, it's now someone else's paycheck. And then it's like, okay, my, can I afford it? What, what is this going to do for me? So all of this stuff went through my head. How did you get over or what, maybe you had something different as well. Like, how did you get there? How did you get, take that step? Well, my first employee was uh, a combo employee, I'd say. It was an MA slash receptionist. So I convinced someone that was actually a patient of mine at the time that I don't know if I would ever do that again. Um, but I convinced them to come work for me and they kind of wore a lot of hats. And still in our clinic, we do ask people to wear a lot of hats, um, but everyone does. You know, I would go and plunge the toilet if it was overflowing, right? And right. so, I mean, I think that if there's nothing else that your listeners hear from this, it's don't be afraid to do the dirty work as the owner, right? Like it sometimes like I've had to crawl through the ceiling when people locked us out of the building before, right? So you got to do it as an owner. Um, but it was a combo person that we had in that position that allowed me to do um, a lot of work. And that was the easy decision. I would say the hard decision was bringing the first actual doctor uh, as an employee. Um, because that was me saying, I can just work more. I can take on more patients. I'm not full. Why do I want to hire someone else if I'm only 60% full? Why do I want to give up that money? Um, and that was really pushing by, you know, some, some coaching from the people that do our coaching, I guess I'd say. Um, and it was huge. Like it was a couple of months of, okay, I hope money comes in and let's get this person marketed and really encouraging them to do more for themselves to get more people in and not just take my overflow, I guess. But quickly, I would say in about six months, we saw the amount of patients we were bringing in start to grow and it made it easier, I guess, an easier pill to swallow at that point. Yeah. So early on, I got to imagine, I mean, when we brought on our first advisor, we had to coach and train them up, right? Because uh, at least a newer person, I don't know if you brought on a newer doctor, right? There's there's not a lot of experience there, right? So how did you, how much time did you spend coaching and training that new doctor before it started? Maybe the answer is six months because you gave six months. Like how did that process work for you? Well, luckily, the first person we hired was had been out for about five years. Okay. So they had some experience. I did not feel like I needed to mentor them much as a as a doctor. Um, so that was that was maybe the smart move there. Um, we are a clinic now that does take on first year residents, and we do uh, we're part of a residency program. Um, so I would say that a brand new doctor, uh, first year doctor, does not make money. Yeah. You know, so there's a lot of mentoring. There's a lot of learning. Um, so those people at the, the starting into their second year will start breaking even at the end of two years. They're actually making some money. Um, but I think even as a business, and I know we want to talk about this more, but as a business, we are only looking to make about 10% off of our, our doctors as far as what they're bringing in from like a gross standpoint. Right. Um, but well, at the end of it, after we pay all the bills. Right. So like, 10% is what you're looking for as a business. And that's a hard thing to get because your employees want to make money and they want to be valued for what they're doing. Um, but there is a value in understanding how much a business costs to run and having been on both sides of this in a private practice as an employee and as an employer, um, there's a lot of things that you don't know what goes on into the business. Yeah. So how did you attract that doctor that was already experienced? Uh, we actually, we had put out an ad. I mean, this was in, this business opened in, we've been open 12 years now. So 2010, 
Um, so we probably put out an ad to the Bastier community. We had some brand new grads that applied. Um, this person that we hired actually came as a reference from uh, my resident, actually. So we had a, someone that I had a resident for a year, and it was a friend of theirs that applied in. Gotcha, gotcha. And and so the lesson here is this is a very small community <laughs> and you have to, you know, the people that you meet along the way can come out to be your best uh, way of getting a job as far as, oh, I know that person. Let me put in a good word for them. Yeah, the networking can be and you know, that term, I even hate that term. I, they, like it's a, <laughs> felt dirty coming out of my mouth, which is kind of sad. But, you know, just getting to understand it and know people and have those type of conversations so that you can actually reach out and and get introduced to quality doctors that are looking to join uh you know another practice with the same with the you know culture that they're looking for is huge exactly and just the, the reference you can get from them or just knowing that there's a job available that you might fit into right it's it's a very small community that we are across the country not even just in washington state yeah so let's let's keep going with with the doctor. So you mentioned you you want to earn like ten percent on on the doctor on the, yeah. um, the So talk more about that. Where did you learn that? How did that come from? Where did that come from? Well, I don't think it's learning anything. I think we I've sat on various um, roundtable discussions, and every employer out there will say that they are hoping to make a profit. I mean, there's no reason to open a business if you're not making a profit on that business. Yeah. Um, and starting a business is quite expensive and there's always fees, right? The rent always goes up. You always have to do maintenance. You have to buy new equipment. Servers fail. So there's always something. Floods happen uh, or COVID. I mean, COVID happens, right? COVID happens, right? So going back to something you said about caring about your employees, right? Someone else's paycheck is on the line. And during COVID, that was a really big part of our business is, you know, at that point we had 12 employees. So it was, what happens if we go under? What happens if we furlough? What happens, you know, do these people get unemployment? Um, and that's a big thing when you look at uh, W-2s versus 1099s, right? Who gets employment and unemployment benefits and who doesn't? Um, so those are all the parts that go into deciding how you have a business and employees. But that, that 10% comes from at the end of the day, uh, when you look at how much it costs to run a room, how much it costs for advertising and lawyers and rent and equipment, what does it cost for a room? And then what does that person bring in? And at the end of a month, do they, you know, can I make 10% off the top after I pay all the bills? That doesn't happen in year one or year two. That might happen around year five, I'd say. Um, we as a business, when people get to about five years, and I think the most we ever made was about 6%. Because we really value people as they're growing, want raises and they want bonuses. And so we're a big company that tries to give back to people. Um, I think the hardest thing as me being an owner is showing people numbers and them understanding what is profit, what is the cost of doing business and coming to an understanding on whether or not that is quote unquote fair. So do you actually sit down with the doctors and actually kind of go through that like as a business owner, like this is how that works and you, so you're educating them from that standpoint? We have in the past, um, being part of a residency program, we are part of the INM Consortium's residency program. So right. it is a business-based residency with the idea of training doctors of this type of thing. What is the cost of doing business? And therefore, 
uh, we do think it's important for them to learn this and see you know, where all those costs come in, not because they want to own a business on their own one day. Maybe they do. And this is really key information because, as you said, the schools don't do a very good job of teaching this. Um, but it ties into what you get as a contract offer and what you think is a good contract versus a bad contract. You know, And if you're going for a 1099 or a W-2 because you pay taxes differently and you know, what are the costs of that and what's, you know, what do you get out of each situation? Yeah, so you you brought up 1099 versus W-2, which is a huge conversation that I have with a lot of our clients uh, in terms of you know what type of practice they're wanting to to grow and run. What what's the end result, if you will, if we're thinking with the end in mind? For you, you hire. It's if I heard you correctly, it was a W-2. Your first doctor was W-2, like a true employee. How did how did you decide that versus 1099? Like walk me through like how that all came about. So one very wise person when I was in school told me to hire the people that do things that you don't do. Mm. So from day one, I hired a CPA and a lawyer. And I went to the people that Bastier used actually, because I was like, if I'm going to open up a business one day, I want people that know how to run this business. And so, you know, if someone that's never worked with a naturopathic practice might not know the nuances. And so that is something really big. And so when we went to our, our bookkeeper, our book, we have a bookkeeper too. We went to our CPA and asked them what they thought. They were the ones that pushed us to do a W-2 over a 1099. Um, and I and gave us all the reasons why. And we felt that it was the right thing to do to be able to give people benefits and unemployment and Medicaid and Social Security and just all of the guarantees you get as being an employee versus being a 1099, being an independent contractor. So you went to, you had like, when you wanted to start your own business, you, you got a CPA, you got a lawyer, you got the the professionals right off the bat. Absolutely. And even though it sounds like a lot, because I was, you know, it had literally in my first six months of practice, I think I saw a total of a dozen patients total, like visit wise. So my cost was negligible. I think my bookkeeper charged me, you know, a hundred dollars for the first six months. So it was because they didn't have anything to do. The, the taxes for the first year were nothing because it was maybe $250 because I didn't have a business that was robust enough to make it because they were doing it by their time and their time was negligible. But as the business grew, they were able to put things in the right buckets as the business grew and needed those buckets. And so now here we are, uh, 12 years of the current practice of Alpine integrated medicine. And we have grown tenfold in those 12 years and they are able to account for all that and put it in the right bucket and make sure that we're legal. And would you say the, looking back on it, the, you know, what you went the W2 route, if you had, you gone the 1099 route, would that have maybe stalled any of the growth that you had? I think that what it does is, it depends on the employee, the employee that you have. Um, someone that's an independent contractor, you, they can do whatever they want, you know, as far as what the, law, the, the rules say. So if someone says you hire them that and they want to go to Australia for two months. Well, technically, I can't stop them because yep. this is their business. Um, I can't tell them what hours to work. Um, and so I want to have a business that works uh, as a whole and is not the sum of five other businesses that come in. Also, um, we want to have people that work together. The whole point of our clinic is to be collaborative. And if you have people that are all on independent contractors, I feel that there's competition. And to the front desk, why did you book patient A 
with this person and not with me. They just got a new patient. And so at our clinic, it allows patients to go to the provider that specializes in what they do and is the right fit for them rather than the next person that deserves a new patient on the list just because you're going through a rotation. So it's, it's partly because our clinic is derived to be patient focused and patient driven rather than clinician driven of who's getting the patients. Yeah. And that's the key there, right? Like there's, I do a, a conversation almost every time around like what type of practice do you want? Do you want the enterprise practice or the lifestyle practice, right? And the enterprise practice is an entity that if you don't show up to work as the owner, it still actually opens up because there's other doctors there that can actually do do the same kind of work that you do. Whereas the lifestyle practice, if you don't show up, your practice doesn't open, mm-hmm. right? And almost every doctor that I ask that question to, most of them say, well, I want the enterprise practice, and but they have 1099s. And there's been horrible, horrible stories that I've seen and heard and even witnessed where, you know, a doctor opens up a practice, has three or four 1099 doctors doing okay, but then the two or three of the 1099 doctors come together and actually go start their own practice and then take their patients with them. Like it just it blows up everything that they're doing. And so when you have that W2 model, depending on the practice that you want, like if you want the lifestyle practice, that's perfectly fine. You, it's just different planning, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And so with the if you want the enterprise type of solution like that, then it's gotta be the W2 route. It's gotta be, okay, what, what do we bring, what can I do for the employees? And you brought that up early on, like the culture, the benefits, right? Taking care of them. And what does that do for you? Well, that provides you a, a business and entity as well as frankly and maybe you can speak into this a little bit how much time it kind of gives you back to maybe focus on being the owner of the practice as well rather than just being the doctor absolutely you know and now work-life balance is i think the term that everyone wants to talk about now <laughs> i would say that both situations require the owner to put in a lot of work right yep. there's never the, the time where you just do it and you step away um i do know some people who are successful at doing that and um, it's because they've set up other people in the practice. They have a clinic manager that's not themselves. They have given a lot of their practice up as far as patient care, and now they're more of a figurehead. And I think you can really only do that in the W-2 model. I think in the 1099, people would just go away, be like, oh, well, you're not doing it, providing me anything, so I'm just going to go set up a shingle next door, just like you said. Um, Washington laws have changed. And so even when you have a W-2 now, there is like really hard to have non-compete anymore. So, um, you know, so there is some different, you know, there are some things that have taken that advantage away for the employee or for me. Um, But I think there's so many other advantages to being an employee rather than being a 1099, just like, and COVID really brought that to the table. Um, It was also like that, honestly, from the ownership side. Um, having had W-2 employees, I was able to get a PPP loan. I was able to get an EIDL loan um, for amounts because the government picked those amounts based on what you paid in. And so if you had 1099s, you didn't pay anything. And so therefore you didn't get those advantages. Also, those people that were getting the 1099s didn't get the advantages of an unemployment because they were, you know, sole sole providers, sole practitioners. Yeah. So... I could keep going on this topic for a long period of time, but uh, so <laughs> let's transition because you brought up another piece that I, I often hear about and you you brought the loan aspect. You couldn't get a loan early on, mm-hmm. right? So talk a little bit more about that. Have we, have you been able to like, has that changed over time? Like, how did you get over that hurdle? Like you brought, you mentioned you sold your car, right? Back to the, back to the bank. So 
Talk more about that. Absolutely relationships, you know, going to a bank, talking to them. Really, I think the biggest thing that got in the way was student loans. Uh, Mm. Being in, trying to go in as an owner without, you know, uh, a whole bunch of money sitting in a bank account. They were like looking at me to provide the backing. And I didn't want to put my house up as collateral because I, you know, you're always taught not to do that. And again, whole other conversation for another podcast about how that is not true. Um, but especially in Washington state. Um, but you have to look at your relationship. So I went to a banker that had, uh, I'd worked at another bank with, and they left their bank. I won't name banks, but they went to another one that was more friendly to local people and small businesses and convinced the president of the bank to not look at my student loans as part of my debt ratio. And to look at my success as a private practice for for two years and my practice beforehand and see my growth that was showing that I was positive. And I was able to get a small loan from them at like the three year mark in order to expand the business a little bit and give us some money. And then after that happened, you know, another two or three years later of paying it down and showing that we were a good, you know, investment, we were able to get another loan for a little bit more. So Again, it was relationships. It was showing that you're making payments. It was being smart about our money and not getting too big too quick. And that was something that um, a big Fortune 500 guy said to me. He said, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king? Mm. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. He's like, because if you want to be king, when you build a practice, you build the most elaborate practice. You want to show everyone that you have everything and you've got the waterfalls in your waiting room and you've got everything that's uniform and beautiful and, you know, fancy. And that's great, but you spend so much money doing that and you look really fancy, but you don't make the return on it. If you want to be rich, you do it in a way that is cost effective, that is within your means and you grow in a way that allows you to uh, put your money in the right place and grow at a rate that is not going to drain your bank account because you don't have the patience to make that work. Um, and I just thought that was a good, a good lesson. And we've kind of always gone with that with our practice is grow slowly, grow as the business grows and not make it go artificially. There's an overarching theme coming from you. And the theme is like you really leveraging the people that you know and getting advice and, and, and really going there. Like, was that just natural for you? It was. And uh, I can't say I know where it came from. Um, I think I've always just been a really good people person. Um, if you've ever read anything or talk about Malcolm Gladwell at all, you know, he would say that I'm a connector. And, um, you know, I've always been like that. And I always want to give people the bro deal, right? So I think that the bro deal, I love yeah. it. <laughs> so my model has always been that I'd rather treat 10 people at $10 than one person at $100. Because it's the same amount of money, but you get more referrals. You get, you can grow your practice more. And I have built my practice on word of mouth. I've spent money on advertising on in newspaper and magazines and, you know, things like that. But it has never returned what just doing good medicine and asking for referrals and, you know, being a connector and talking to other people and not being afraid to refer out for things that you don't do and making those connections so that they refer back to you for the things that you do well. The same thing is true in, in in my area, right? So building a financial practice is exactly what you just said. That I think that's why I get along so well with naturopathic doctors is, is what you're building, I've experienced and had to go through as well. And referrals, like referrals and being that connector piece 
if you can if you have that type of personality which if you don't have the personality it's really hard to come out of your shell and and do that but what what is how did you over well you didn't have to overcome the referral piece but how, how did you get there what language have you been using for that referral piece for other doctors maybe to hear so that they can possibly steal it and use it for themselves it's communication and with your patients and actual caring and knowing what people are doing and following up and when you have that person that comes back and has that aha moment like wow i've worked with this person and for years and you were the first person that did xyz and now i feel so much better great do you mind writing a testimonial and people honestly i think are just afraid of asking yep um i have never been afraid to ask even when i was a little kid um i remember walking up to the world champion yo-yo guy and saying hey you're awesome can i have your yo-yo and <laughs> ended it to me right like <laughs> what's the worst they can say is no no right i've always learned and so the worst that someone can say to you is no or they don't write the testimonial because you know what the person that doesn't like you has no problem writing that negative review and so you need to ask for the positive ones because those people are so happy they go on with their lives they don't think of telling people they don't want to let other people know their secrets sometimes yeah, and it sounds like you you go to there is a an experience that you're providing your patients, right? Maybe does it, maybe you don't have the waterfalls falling down. And frankly, I don't know. Most people, I don't even really think, give a crap about walking into a doctor clinic and seeing a waterfall. I think they give a crap about like how did you help them? How did you make them feel? And did you follow up like the accountability piece of that, right? Because and that's a big piece of my industry where people sit down and they're like they want to talk about money. We go through this whole ordeal and they're like, okay, that sounds like a good plan. And then they don't do it, right? So we have to follow up and it's an accountability piece. I got to think it's the exact same thing in, in naturopathic practice. Absolutely. And it really, I guess, depends on what type of provider you are. And naturopaths, you know, we can be any specialty. Um, I have a specialty in women's health hormones, um, but I also do primary care. And I always saw myself as kind of more of the country doctor, or I, always, I guess just wanted that model of, you know, I know about my patients. I know where they like to vacation. I know they have three dogs and a horse and they raise chickens and what their kids' names are and that their father died last year. You know, like I know more about my patient and I accept emails from my patient and I answer those emails and I encourage people to communicate with me. Um, I always say I was answering phone calls on my wedding day in Jamaica and that has just always been who I am as a provider. It's exhausting. Um, and it's partly why we put in a concierge program in our practice, because I, the thing that I have done for at that point, probably 10 years of practice, I was able to then monetize that because my, I had developed a relationship with my patients that they were used to me being available and answering their questions without them having to make a visit every time. And so it was really easy for me to transition that into something they were going to pay monthly for. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the concierge because I noticed that on your site. Right, and I've noticed a couple other naturopathic doctors that I that I know and or working with that are starting to transition to that same type of concierge model. I think it's huge. I think it's I think that's what a lot of patients want, and it, it's really good for them. And and obviously, it's really good for you in terms of the doctor and, and revenue coming in in the door for that. That just I mean I think you just told a story, but is that where that all came from? Like how did you how did you transition to that? Like how much of it is the concierge model versus the the other model? Well, so our concierge model is kind of a, a split. So we still take insurance. Um, and this okay. is actually more of like a retainer fee over the top, if you will, or a second copay. 
So um, again, we paid lawyers, we made sure this was totally legal and we have a lot of language around it and how it is legal um, because of course, I've already been called by the major insurance companies and questioned about the legality of this and mm-hmm. we're all good. And we actually consult with other businesses on how to do this um, because it is about language. Again, communication is all yep. about it. Um, but we were getting to a point that, again, I was looking at my time and how much I was spending and how I was going to go on vacation and not answer all my emails and people be mad at me. And I was able to monetize it at that point and say, hey, I'm going to start limiting my practice. And instead of me closing to new patients, I said, people can choose to either see me or see my other staff here. And because they're all employees, it was really easy for me to give that overflow to the other staff. So that was a natural way to also grow the other doctors at our clinic. Um, and we have different tiers, so people don't always have to pay to see me exclusively. They can pay a lower tier and get one of my other doctors, and it's less money, but maybe they don't get all the benefits in the top tier. Sure. Uh, but that has been a huge help in giving us um, a monthly, on the first of every month, we get you know a drop of money that goes into our bank account. Um, and that's been a huge thing for our business. And because of the relationships we built with our patients, we didn't lose a lot of our patients. Um, and because of how much we do communicate, you know, all our staff here does answer emails and is, you know, doing the model that I've developed, the patients don't mind paying the extra for it. So, and when they leave and they go to other practices that maybe don't offer the option of email, they ultimately come back because they recognize that there's a value there. Yep. And so I can just imagine doctors hearing this and maybe they've been thinking about it and there's just that fear of, of charging extra. Mm-hmm. And and you have to really think about it. and your I mean the confidence you exude is, is fantastic from the standpoint of you understood the value that was that the patients were going to get right and if they understand that value they're going to pay for it like that, it's just that simple and I think that there's you know we have also consulted with businesses and said this is not for you because you don't want to be available you don't want to answer emails you don't want to have an after hours line um, you don't want to write a newsletter every month to your patient population. Um, and that's fine too. Um, I think yeah. that people really have to decide what do they want to your point? Do you want to be able to walk away one day and vacation for three months every year and have your business operating for you and making money? Or when that time comes, are you just going to walk away, close your, your business door, lock it up and you know, it's not worth anything because you didn't build that type of practice. It, it's it's huge and thinking from that standpoint of understanding what it is you want now you kind of know what direction you're going to go and and let's just face it oftentimes we open we when you first open up you're pretty much a lifestyle practice and the, but you have to build towards the enterprise practice right? absolutely Which, and that's the key ingredient there so and i think that people need to think about things at in like the five the ten the fifteen and the twenty five year plan um i've been practicing for sixteen years so i feel like i'm at like that of the crest right and so now it's the downside on the other end so um what does the next 15 years of my career look like and how does it round out at the end and is it a practice i'm selling is it something i'm saying hey guys good luck go somewhere else because i'm closing the door um and all of those possibilities are there and if you start thinking about it now maybe there's an employee that wants to take it over because they are just starting out and they're not they're at the beginning of their climb um so i think again it's about relationships it's about planning and it's about communication yeah and you nailed it the flexibility you just said maybe i close my practice maybe i sell it maybe right you have that flexibility because you're thinking with that aspect with the end in mind which absolutely because you've taken the business owner owner hat on right and took the doctor hat off that's how you get there which is so difficult early on 
Um, I know your time is valuable here and we've got to, we've got to wrap this up. I do have one question for you that I didn't prep you for. So hopefully it doesn't shock you too much here, but I'd love to hear if you had to start all over, or if you were talking to a newer doctor or even a doctor that maybe has been in practice for a couple of years, that's maybe struggling. What are the like top three things that you would tell that doctor to really focus on to get them to the next step? Wow. Like, okay. What have you, what have you learned? What are the like three things that you said you have to do this? I think you have to pay people to do the things that you don't know how to do. I think that's, that's key. And it seems weird to want to spend money when you don't have money. Um, but your time is valuable and, you know, even just paying someone to do your taxes, you know, that's not our expertise and, you know, learning that is hard. So I think pay someone to do the things that you don't do. Um, network. So get out there and meet the other practitioners in your profession, outside your profession and talk to people um, and ask for referrals. I think that would be the third thing is, you know, work hard enough, develop a niche. And, you know, when you do a good job and you take care of your patients, the rest will come. And if you ask for referrals, that will help to build your practice. Awesome. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for being on the, the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities Guardian or Quantified Financial Partners and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities LLC is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Ryan and Alex are registered representatives and financial advisors of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ 200 Market Street, Suite 1850, Portland, Oregon 97201. Phone number 503-221-1226. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities member FINRA SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Ryan Burklow, AR Insurance License number 1531912. CA Insurance License number 0K24924. Alexander Collins, AR Insurance License number 7264699. CA Insurance License Number 0H24806, Pinpoint Number 2022-139048, Expiration June 2024.